And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Invasion or ceasefire? What's it going to be in the Middle East? And hello there, welcome to Tuesday right here on The Bridge, and we're looking at the Middle East situation again today uh, with a special guest. We'll get to that in a moment. First, some, uh, I don't know, context to where we are right now. It was 17 days ago that Hamas entered Israel from Gaza, and they went on a killing, murdering spree. They butchered hundreds of Israelis. I think 1,400 was the latest count from that day on October 7th. There were Israeli soldiers killed, but there were mainly men, women, and children murdered, butchered on October 7th. Some to the point of having their heads cut off. Yesterday, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, showed what images they've been able to collect from that day through everything from cell phones, from dashboard cameras, from security cameras. And they put it together to show the media what had happened on that day. Why are they doing that 17 days later? Well, they're doing it because some within the Israeli community feel that the Hamas side is winning the propaganda war. And that Israel has got to get that story out front again about what happened at the beginning on October 7th. Because since then, almost predictably, the story has shifted from what happened on October 7th to what's happening in Gaza as the Israelis prepare a full-scale ground invasion. They've been attacking Gaza almost consistently since October 7th from the air and some ground forces. And they've had the support of the United States and to a large degree the United Kingdom. They're losing some of the kind of worldwide support they'd had right out of the gate. Losing maybe too strong a word, but they are seeing the fact that France and the European Union are saying ceasefire. It's time for a ceasefire. We've got to have a ceasefire. Too many innocent civilians are dying. What's going to happen? It's unclear what's going to happen at this stage, but those are the competing forces. Where's Canada on this? Well, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, wants a meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau because he says we don't have the position of ceasefire and we should have. And he's demanding a meeting to try and talk about that with the Prime Minister. We'll see where that goes. It's obvious that the Liberal caucus is to a degree split on this issue. Just as I imagine, so are a lot of other people in different parts of the world. And generally, where the people stand? You know, the uh, 
The Telegraph has a piece today in the British papers. I'll just read you a couple of sentences. Take a step back, and the morality of the matter should be simple. A jihad group carries out what may be the worst terrorist atrocity in history against the civilians of a liberal democracy. Facing an existential threat, that country, which for almost two decades has been providing the enclave with electricity and water, while its leaders spend their funds on terror infrastructure, it launches defensive military action. Civilians die in the crossfire. Such is the hell of war. There are only so many beheadings a nation can take. And the final part of this telegraph opening to their story is this. Yet YouGov polling has revealed that the sympathies of the great British public are divided. Of those surveyed, 21% support Israel, while 17% side with the Palestinians. Even this level of support is likely to collapse in the coming weeks as Hamas gains ground in the propaganda war. Mass rallies are being held on the streets of our major cities, while on social media, hashtags like Palestinian genocide are trending. If that sounds familiar to you, it probably should, because we've seen the same kind of thing happening in Canada in the last week. Rallies, big rallies. Social media. So where's this heading? Well, here on the bridge, what we've been trying to do on this story, in the days we have discussed it over these last 17 we're trying to trying as best we can to place some things in context and give a sense of in some cases the sense of history on this story and i greatly appreciate the fact that many of you have written uh, to me appreciating what we've done there have been some who have, you know are not happy but the overwhelming majority of you who've written are greatly appreciative of the discussions we've been having and the interviews that we've had. And I appreciate that. So today is similar along that vein. Uh, We're going to talk to somebody we've had on the bridge before a number of times, Dr. Samantha Nutt, the uh, president and the founding uh, member of the War Child Canada organization. It's charity, humanitarian work, goes in and out of the most dangerous places in the world, trying to help children. Um, Dr. Nutt, Sam as we call her, um, has been in and out of war zones for the last two decades. All over the world, many of those places in the Middle East and Africa. She's just come back from her latest trip to uh, Yemen and Jordan. And I wanted to talk to her to try and get a sense of not only what's happening in those two countries, especially in Yemen, uh, because we hear about Yemen every once in a while, right? The uh, Houthi rebels have fired missiles at, um, aimed at Israel and aimed at uh, American warships 
in the last week, which surprised a lot of people. But shows they're part of this story too. But I wanted to get a, a sense from Sam as to how this is playing out on the Arab street because she's closer to it than many because of the work she does. So enough from me, as we like to say. Uh, let's get to this conversation uh, with Dr. Samantha Nutt and get a sense from her what she's hearing, what she's seeing, what she's feeling as a result of the work she does. Here we go. Sam, I want to start with uh, the situation that you saw last week, you witnessed uh, last week in Amman, Jordan, the capital of Jordan. Sort of the, the, the sense of what the Arab street it, and how it's reacting to what's going on in Israel and Gaza. What, what can you tell us? Well, Peter, I was there right when Biden was uh, expected to arrive. And so I landed from Ye Yemen on the UN humanitarian flight in the evening. Um, and it was just hours before his expected arrival. And so to say that it was chaotic with both the, the traffic and protesters and um, just the sort of general level of, of confusion around that would be an understatement. But certainly having been there for those couple of days before coming out of the country, um, I, I had the opportunity to really listen to people, to watch the protests that were that were taking place. And um, it, it's, it's very clear that there is a great deal of, of grief and rage and confusion and distress around what's happening in, in Gaza in particular. Do they, do they talk at all about what happened before the Israelis started, you know, attacking Gaza? What happened on October 7th in, in Israel uh, by Hamas? They, they do. And remember that there is a sizable Palestinian population within Jordan itself who have been refugees who've been streaming across over the last several decades. And so um, certainly within within Jordan, which is uh, very much a U.S. ally, they there is a recognition and an understanding of the atrocities that took place and um, the, the nature of Hamas in terms of of being engaging in this kind of uh, guerrilla style warfare and have they have been doing that for many, many years now. And so there is certainly you do hear expressions of of sadness and grief and a recognition of what happened within Israel at the same time, watching the news feed every day in terms of what's been going on within Gaza and the level of suffering that that speaks to the very heart of of Jordanians, especially Palestinians living in Jordan in, in Jordan. And uh, and it's and it's very clear that they are in a lot of distress and that they feel a lot of uh, commonality with uh, Gazans who are going through incredible hardship and struggle right now. So it's that. Um, that hardship and struggle that is is feeding the rage uh, more than anything. Yeah, I would say it's a mixture of rage and distress. One of the most consistent things I heard both in Jordan and in Yemen, and this is the first time I really heard this with such 
scale and frequency, particularly among men between the ages of 16 and in, even into their late 60s, is that if this intensifies and turns into a ground war, many of them have would make comments that they had never thought about picking up arms before uh, to go and defend Palestinians, but that they are feeling so moved and so upset about the images that they're seeing and the loss of civilian life, that this is the one time when they would consider doing that. Now, you can't generalize. I mean, these are conversations that you have in in cafes and in taxis and, you know, on the street and that kind of thing. But but that level of rage and and concern um, and grievance is something that I had not seen in the Middle East since the Iraq war in, in both 1991 and then in, in 2003, because I've been going in and out of the region for many, many decades now. I'm, I'm old. <laughs> um, but you used to hear that kind of rage being expressed towards the United States, particularly in Iraq in the early 2000s. Um, and, and that you're, you're, you're hearing that again. It's, it's very, very palpable. And it's, uh, it's it's very real. So, you know, the next few weeks as this crisis unfolds, if you do see when we do see the the, the ground war, um, when we see the neighboring countries being dragged into this crisis, it certainly would not surprise me if you then have a, a, an escalation of foreign fighters who are gravitating towards the region to help support Hamas, even among those who would not normally consider themselves to be allies of Hamas and who still nevertheless condemn the tactics that Hamas deployed against Israel. Okay. The reason I was asking the questions the way I was asking them is I'm trying to get at another uh, point that we, we uh, before we get to Yemen, which I know is your particular interest, certainly on this last trip, but here's my my issue, I guess, if it's an issue. There's been much discussion in the Western uh, world about the kind of media coverage that's existed on this story and whether or not it's accurate and fair and in context and unbiased. There's a lot of discussion uh, around all that. What I guess I'm wondering is for those on the Arab street, whether it's in Amman, Jordan, or wherever it may be in the Arab world, um, what, what is the sense of the way they're getting their information about what's going on in Israel and in Gaza? Well, Peter, they're certainly not watching CNN, most of them. Uh, and if they are watching CNN, it's, it's usually because they are expressing discontent with the way that that coverage is, is manifesting. Um, many of them watch Al Jazeera when you're in, when you're in the airports, when you're in lobbies, when you're just hanging around, uh, it's Al Jazeera that is the news feed that is streaming. And it is a very um, understandably Arab focused look at, at the situation and, and how it's transpiring. So um, I would say that there is significant cynicism around the way in which this story is being covered by Western countries and that they see our coverage and the language that is being used as inherently biased and not um, recognizing the, the extensive history and geopolitical realities of the region. So it's, um, and, and there are, there is some truth to that, right? I mean, we saw this even uh, or we have seen this around the bombing of, of the hospital and it became extremely polarized. And even before there was any evidence that had been released around who is likely to blame for that, unfortunately, the way that that has 
been covered here by Western media, even if there was strong, robust evidence that this was a misfired rocket coming from within Gaza itself and not an Israeli strike, the perception is that there's uh, so much propaganda coming from the West, so much propaganda coming from Israel, that those images have been manipulated in some way and that proof will never be enough. So uh, I don't know if I've ex explained that in a way that's gonna be clear for your listeners, but the, the point is that the distrust is so real that it doesn't matter what you can prove. Um, the perception is that the, the the West in and of itself is is not supporting uh, Palestinian civilians to the extent that they need to. And there's just an incredible amount of, of anger and resentment surrounding that. But there is not that same kind of cynicism about their, their own media, the, the Arab media there, whether it's Al Jazeera uh, Arab that they're watching um, or, or, or whatever they're reading, there isn't that cynicism about the kind of coverage they're getting through their own media. It's always hard to generalize. I think it's like us at home watching watching CNN or watching any news feed. You, there are little things that pop up, and you go, "Well, I'm not sure if that's entirely if that's entirely accurate." Or, or because it's but this is the nature of breaking news as well, right? The the narratives can change, the realities on the ground can change. Frankly, though, I've never seen a conflict playing out in real time where everything is so polarizing everything is is seen as propaganda coming from one side or the other including the number of people who who have died who have been killed who are being injured in different strikes it is there it, it is impossible to talk about this story and i think even to report on the story without getting attacked in every single direction and that's unfortunate because i think that that really prevents people from understanding the nuance the complexities and, and, and also feeling that there is a middle ground here that that can be walked, uh, particularly around the humanitarian impact, if we're willing to sit down at the table and have and have conversations around it. And the humanitarian impact is is devastating and and uh, and deepening with every passing day. All right, and we're going to get to that uh, right after this last question on this point. As you know, there is a great deal of uh, mistrust in. The media generally in the West right now, it's, you know, the, the trust factor has plummeted in the last 10 years or so um, to the point it's unrecognizable, uh, the kind of numbers it used to get in terms of placing their trust, viewers, listeners, readers in the media. But trust in media in the Arab world, I mean, it's, I guess it's unfair to ask you this because it's not like you went over there to study media. But, um, <laughs> but uh, would you sense there's more trust there from what you've witnessed in the media, their media, than there is here in our media? Um, that's always very, that's very difficult to assess, honestly. But what I would say is that this crisis, when you talk about Gaza, uh, there are very few people in terms of the the regional uh, implications that don't have some kind of direct contact with people on the ground. So there are a lot of Palestinian families who, as I mentioned, have been displaced, who are living in Jordan, who are living in other neighboring countries and uh, in Egypt and elsewhere. And so they're not just getting their information from Al Jazeera, they're getting information from their loved ones, from their relatives that are on the ground. And so uh, in that sense, they are 
feeling i think the the intensity of it and the uh, the, the the fear for the for those who have been left behind and so they're not i would say for most people it, it's it's not that they're just getting it from groups like al jazeera they're getting information directly verified by friends and loved ones and and reacting accordingly all right let's talk yemen uh, for a few moments. The, you've been to Yemen, I don't know how many times, just in the last year, three or four times in the, in the last, well, since we've been talking about it uh, with you over the last eight or nine months. Um, I, most of us probably couldn't find Yemen on a map. Um, <laughs> you've been there. We've been hearing the, the, about Yemen uh, as a result of this story, uh, the uh, Israel-Gaza story in the last few weeks. Where does it fit in the big picture, and why are you going there? Uh, obviously, it, there's a humanitarian issue in Yemen with a war that's been going on for a number of years now. Um, tell us how what you saw and how this fits into the big picture. Well, Yemen has faced one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes in the world over the last, uh, very pronounced over the last decade when the war started. They've lost more than 350,000 people, but more importantly than that, Peter, they have, uh, it's one of the countries that is at the highest risk of famine in the world. They have more than 2 million children who are facing acute starvation and 17 million people who are entirely dependent on, on food aid. Um, and so in terms of the humanitarian risk right now, part of what we're seeing as an organization, Warchild, is that as a result of Ukraine, as a result of now the war in Israel and, uh, and, and in Gaza, we're seeing a massive redirection of humanitarian resources, funding and, and effort towards those crises, frankly, at the expense of many other equally, if not more so, high-risk environments throughout the world. And so one of the reasons why I've continued to go back to Yemen, and we've got programming in Sudan and South Sudan and elsewhere, is if you look at, for example, the global humanitarian appeal, it's about 30% funded, and children are starting to die as a result of this. And so it is all interconnected. It's interconnected from a humanitarian perspective within the region, because Yemen is incredibly vulnerable and Yemeni civilians are very vulnerable. 80% of them are dependent on humanitarian aid, about 25 million people. And then even militarily, uh, obviously with this conflict heating up in, in the other part of the Middle East, that has pulled Yemen into it as well. And we saw this in the northern Houthi areas, which are backed by Iran. The day that I was leaving Yemen, we saw uh, missiles that were being launched by the northern Houthis towards U.S. warships and towards Israel. So when we think about the regional implications of this crisis, both from a military perspective and a humanitarian perspective, Yemen, given its proximity um, and given the scale of need, becomes quite important. And yet it's a crisis that we have dramatically overlooked over the last, uh, certainly over the last five, six years. And why should we, aside from it being a humanitarian crisis, which should be all one needs to get involved, uh, often Western countries like to find other reasons why they should be involved as well, why they should, you know, prime that pump on the humanitarian side, because in this case, Yemen is important to them. Is Yemen important to us? And if it is, why? 
Yemen should be important to us because anywhere, as as this conflict drags on between Gaza and Israel, there will be a, I think, a, a mass movement of various forces towards uh, towards Gaza to provide, to buttress their support, both in terms of uh, um personnel, you know, uh, on the ground, as well as military support. And given Yemen, especially in the northern part of the country, given their close alliance with Iran, and then in the southern part of the country, where you have Al-Qaeda, you have a cap Al-Qaeda in the Arab uh, Peninsula, um, and then you also have some ISIS elements, there are, there's a very real risk that if this conflict spills over borders, that it's going to pull in some of these actors and become uh, a crisis on a level that we have not witnessed certainly in in many decades now, possibly not even in in, in my lifetime. If we're looking at a full scale regional war, um, Yemen is important because they have been at war for the last almost decade. They have tens of thousands of soldiers that have been trained. They have a tremendous amount of military equipment. They are a sizable part of the North is aligned with Iran. So this is where some of these fighting forces are going to be drawn from, not just Hezbollah, not just from, from Syria. It's it's going to include uh, some of these other actors as well. And and they're they're upset and they're angry and they are increasingly desperate. And there's no question that they are aggrieved when it comes to US foreign policy, uh, the, the the Western world and and our, our lack of engagement on the humanitarian front there. Um, obviously, you're not there to give military analysis or, or advising <laughs> the, that situation, but you are there to try and help on the humanitarian front. You, you've told us that the situation there is desperate. I, I hate to ask it this way, but how desperate is it? T- tell us about that situation. Honestly, I, I have not seen anything like it of, of certainly of that scale since I was in Somalia in the early 90s during the famine working for UNICEF. It was um, it is it is utterly horrendous what's transpiring. And so, as I mentioned, with the 30 percent funding of the global humanitarian appeal for Yemen, and it has been cut back year over year over year, and Canada's hardly contributing anything at this moment in time. I think it's about $25 million in total. Um, What that does in a practical sense on the ground, so groups like the World Food Program, when you've got 17 million Yemeni civilians who are entirely dependent on food assistance, World Food Program was providing food rations to high-risk groups like people who have been displaced, they called internally displaced people living in camps. They were providing food baskets once a month for those high-risk groups. Now they are reduced to twice a year because of the limited availability of resources. And what that looks like in a practical way is when I was in that IDP camp, um, internally displaced persons camp, the the two people that I met with, the moment that I arrived, Um, One was a young boy who was 12 years of age, who looked like he was about eight because of the chronic malnutrition. And he came in and he was a right arm amputee. He had lost his arm a few months before and part of his face and had a big scar across his chest. 
because his family was running out of food. And what they were doing is they send the children out to, and, and often women, to scrounge garbage. So they collect plastic bottles. They try to bring them to you know, hand them in so they'll get pennies for these plastic bottles so that they can feed themselves. And he came across a munitions box that was actually um, uh, an anti-aircraft missile, which he didn't know. And so he thought he would make a lot of money by being able to resell it, but he wanted to know for sure it was inside. So he started taking a rock and was pounding it. And as he was pounding it, it exploded on him and he lost his arm. And immediately after that, uh, a woman walked in with her one-year-old daughter who was very clearly in uh, acute starvation. I mean, she was, she was dying in front of us and in the most horrible, horrible way. Um, she was too tired and too dehydrated from famine and diarrheal disease to even produce tears as she was barely crying. Um, and this was a family who the, daughter who is slightly older, um, the elder sister, she had just passed away a few months ago. And again, this was a family that their food rations had been cut back. So when you look at a crisis like Yemen and you, it's very easy to intellectualize the stuff and to turn around and go, well, you know, we've got donor fatigue and, and uh, how much more can we possibly give? But there has been a very, very direct impact on the entire humanitarian sector in every other crisis throughout the world as a result of Ukraine, as a result of this, this current crisis. And people are dying. And it's very difficult um, to be confronted with that and to know that it is entirely avoidable. And yet we don't seem to be able to harness the, the um, level of compassion and concern that would be required to prevent that kind of outcome. And within that, I think the other big tragedy of this is when we think about what's happening in Gaza and Israel, when you have populations like this who are aggrieved, who are dying, who, whose children are wasting away in front of them, it's not difficult for them to feel upset and angry with a Western world that they feel has abandoned them. And, and that is a very dangerous proposition. And I guess, um, given the world's attention in these last couple of years, so much on Ukraine and clearly now on Israel, that's all diverting away from places like Yemen. It is. It, it is. And, and famine is, it's a slow motion tragedy and you see it coming. And we know as well, because of there's been massive food insecurity everywhere in the world as a result of the war in Ukraine and the decline in uh, the availability of fertilizers. So the food production has decreased throughout the world. Food prices are going up. And it is the global South, especially, that is paying the biggest price within that. I mean, we're looking at a food crisis again, heading into to the end of this year and into 2024 that will be on an unprecedented scale. And at the same time, if you look at, you know, there's this thing called the humanitarian aid tracker on the UN uh, OCHA website, which is the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. And you can go down that list, Peter, and you can see Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, Congo, Sudan, South Sudan, and none of those crises, and here we are in October, are, are over 40% funded. I mean, most of them are hovering under 30% funded. and 
And that affects millions upon millions upon millions of people. It also uh, disproportionately affects women and children because then they end up like that young boy, Abdullah, who lost his arm. They end up engaging in increasingly high risk activities that threaten their lives. And, um, you know, and, and, and ultimately that is a, it is, it is a horrific price to pay. And, and yet, you know, there's so much cynicism around, around humanitarian aid. Um, but it is a necessary part of peace and security throughout the world. How do you address that? How do you address the cynicism that exists beyond just saying what you just said, that, that it's needed to, uh, to deal with some of these, you know, global issues, but how do you address it on a, you know, more person to person level? You have to keep talking about it. You have to keep speaking about it and writing about it and trying to shine a light on it and help people understand that that these kinds of outcomes are not inevitable. Um, there are ways to intercede that will, frankly, create peace and security well, through investments in education, through investments in food security type programs, whether that's uh, food aid or cash vouchers or uh, farming and, and cultivation and trying to trying to work with groups to ensure that they have a stable pipeline of food. I mean, all of this can be done. It's just if there's the political will to, to do it. And, you know, we, I, I think, unfortunately, we disproportionately fund the military interests around these kinds of crises, at, often at the expense of the humanitarian protection that has to that has to take place. And we're seeing that in Gaza as well. I mean, we're seeing that right now play out. I mean, 20 trucks, eight trucks went in yesterday, 17 went in today. That is not even a fraction of what's going to be required in order to ensure that people survive this. And it reminds me when I'm watching this, it reminds me of being in Iraq immediately after the shock and awe campaign of 2003, also in 1991 with the complete economic sanctions that took place, the decimation of the electrical infrastructure, the water becomes contaminated. There is the immediate, there are the immediate numbers of people who are killed as a result of the bombardment. But the aftermath of that bombardment in terms of the numbers of civilian kill, civilians killed is on a scale that is 10 times a hundred hundredfold even greater because vulnerable groups start drinking contaminated water. They start getting diarrheal diseases. They don't have access to um, medications that they require. They're exposed to, to uh, you know, pneumonia and, and, and other things that disproportionately affect children and the elderly. And that's when you start to see death tolls that get into the tens of thousands and the hundreds of thousands. So not having that humanitarian corridor right now in, in Gaza in a way that will meaningfully keep people alive is, is, is deeply problematic. And that lack of concern on the humanitarian front is the same in Yemen. It's the same in Sudan. It's the same in Somalia. It's the same. We're facing the worst refugee crisis since World War II. We have 117 million people displaced from their homes. And if we're not paying attention to that, it's going to be absolutely catastrophic, not just from a humanitarian perspective, but also from, from a, a peace and security perspective. Last, uh, last, I'm sorry, that was a long answer. No, no, no. I, listen, I mean, one can't but sit here stunned listening to you about what the situation is globally, and in, in particular in, in certain countries, and, and Yemen, where you've just been. I mean, Yemen is and has been for the last decade one of the most dangerous places on earth 
for anyone to go to. We understand why you go. This is what your mm. life has been dedicated to beyond your own family. Um, but how do you stay safe? Like, I mean, this is a dangerous, dangerous place, and you, you keep going back. Very carefully. Uh, we have really good security networks on the ground that we're a part of and the part of the UN security briefings and that, that kind of thing. I did have to change elements of my uh, of my visit because we have programming in some locations that now have been infiltrated by a cap, as I mentioned, Al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula. Um, there have been attacks on on uh, aid organizations. There have been hostages, uh, kidnap and ransom that have been taking place, particularly in the southern part of the country. So you you need to be extremely careful and um, need to make sure that you're doing little things like not leaving at the same time and returning at the same time every day and and not being predictable. I mean, look, it's the the reality is that um, what we do is is dangerous. Uh, what we do as an organization is becoming increasingly dangerous. We are in Sudan, our staff in Darfur, Sudan, we're one of few organizations remaining in Darfur when the April war struck um, and our staff were displaced. And uh, fortunately, everybody has, has, has survived that attack, but there are mass atrocities that are taking place there, mass migration across the borders into, into the CAR, into Central African Republic, Chad, South Sudan. And again, I mean, the humanitarian response for Sudan is is 30% funded. So we have to be there. We have to support our teams. 99% of our staff are local. They need resources. They need um, the, the world to be paying attention to it. So that's why we're there. But, um, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, it's... Uh, I think when you've been doing this kind of war zone work for a very long time, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't because you can't sit here and just watch it happen. And at the same time, um, putting yourself back into it, understandably comes with certain risks, but it also becomes the only way you can sleep at night. Dr. Samantha Nutt, we, um, we admire you and we appreciate your time and uh, talking to us about, about this story uh, in the detail you do. So thanks very much. Well, thank you, Peter, and thanks for for drawing attention to it. I, I'm very grateful. Dr. Samantha, not pretty special person, just like all those people who are uh, similar to uh, to Sam Nutt, who are traveling different parts of the world trying to help um, in what is an exhaustingly difficult situation. Um, if you want to help War Child. Canada, this is how you do it. Uh, go to their website, warchild.ca. Pretty simple. Warchild.ca. Warchild, one word, dot ca. And uh, there are areas there that you can help and you can donate. So um, if you feel so moved, please do. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, a couple of end bits for you to try and shift the, I don't know, it's been a pretty hard couple of days here at the bridge in terms of the stories we've been dealing with, so we're going to try and shift focus a little bit, uh, give you something else to think about, for, uh, if only for a minute or so. That's right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to uh, The Bridge, the final segment here on this 
Tuesday. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Good to have you with us. You're listening on Sirius XM Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, here's a question for you. Let's see whether uh, whether this name rings a bell to you. The Cape Grim Baseline Atmospheric Pollution Station, or as it's known, the CGBAPS. Ever heard of that? You have any idea where it might be? Well, the Cape Grim Baseline Atmospheric Pollution Station is on a cape in Tasmania. All right, Tasmania is that, that big chunk of land, that island, south of Australia, right? And Tasmania has a, this, this is not what this story is about, but I always, whenever I think of Tasmania, I think Sir John Franklin, right? The Franklin Expedition in the Canadian Arctic on the two ships, the Erebus and the Terror. Sir John Franklin's posting, last posting before he was captain of that expedition that went into the Arctic looking for the Northwest Passage, his last posting was governor of Tasmania. And you know what? You know who came to visit him? Two ships, the Erebus and the Terror. So that was in the uh, early 1840s. Uh, before he eventually became named the captain of the expedition to the Canadian Arctic, where he had those two ships, the Erebus and the Terror. So anyway, that's not what this story is about. This story is about the testing that goes on at that station on Tasmania, a remote Cape area that uh, the station is based on. Um, That station plays an integral part in the world's climate change research. Oh, I told you I was going to try and say something about climate change every week. That station chronicles stratospheric ozone depletion, as well as valuable weather and climate information, such as temperature, rainfall, wind, humidity, and solar radiation. These measurements are particularly important as they define how the composition of the global atmosphere has changed and how it continues to evolve. If you say, gee, Peter, it sounds like you're reading. I am. It's a BBC story. But here's what it's about. There's been a search on for the cleanest, purest air in the world. And guess where it is? It's right where that Cape Grim Baseline Atmospheric Pollution Station is. It's the northwestern tip of Australia's island state of Tasmania. Wildly remote peninsula with a bleak name, Cape Grim. That's pretty bleak, all right. Few travelers uh, make it to this region, known as the edge of the world. But those who come find dramatic cliffs, windswept heaths, and black sand beaches, in striking contrast to the verdant patchwork farmland on the hilltops. Cleanest air on earth, according to the air pollution station located on the Cape. It's been there since 1976, collecting data, and that's what it's found. So there's something you didn't know. Maybe you did know. Maybe some of you knew. 
But you can dazzle people at dinner tonight when you say, where's the cleanest air on earth? Here's the other end bit for today. What do you think Europe's, so there's a vote that's taken every year, what do you think Europe's best tourist attraction of 2023 has been? Top, the best. Well, I know you probably say, the Eiffel Tower in Paris? No, it's not the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Been there, done that, want something different. How about the Acropolis in Athens? It's pretty special. But no, that wasn't it. The Colosseum in Rome? No, not it. Well, here it is. Europe's top travel destination this year. The best tourist attraction of 2023 in Europe. Here it is. The Guinness Storehouse in Dublin. The number one tourist attraction, period, in Europe for 2023. The Guinness Storehouse wasn't the only Dublin attraction up for the prize. The Irish Immigration Museum also made the nomination list. But it was the Guinness and its iconic beer that was the most appealing. It's less a garden. This is from the, the piece in, it's, a, it's called Mental Floss, okay? This um, online story. It's less a garden variety brewery than a theme park. You can print a selfie in your beer froth, latte style, and become an expert at pouring a pint of Guinness the right way. It's a six-step process, by the way. You can also tour the premises. Underground tunnels included. Guinness's more than 250-year-long history is teeming with fascinating facts. There you go. Now you know where to go. If you're going to Europe and you're looking for the top tourist attraction, you're going to Guinness in Dublin. All right, my friends, that's it for this day. If you've got thoughts on any of the stuff we've talked about in the last couple of days, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Um, I go through them all. Some of them end up on Thursday's Your Turn program, along with the Random Ranter. Tomorrow, it's Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. Friday, Good Talk, Chantel, Hebert, and Bruce joins us once again. That's it for this day. This Tuesday, I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours.